0: If I told her that day, that in your 40s, you're going to go and compete on a national level, and you're going to love every minute of it, she would have thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. And yet, the adults have, even though they have that heightened sense of failure, they also have a heightened sense of accomplishment when they've done something that they never thought they could do.
1: Hello everybody, welcome back to Conversations from the Hearth. Today we're joined by Master Samuel Morris from South Orlando Martial Arts. Master Samuel, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir.
2: Likewise. So Master Samuel, um, we're just getting to know you here uh, as staff members, but our students don't know you at all. Um, I know you've been training for a long time. You're a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo. You have your own school out there uh, in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the martial arts and where you are today?
0: Okay, I, uh, I came in probably as a very non-traditional student. I started late in life 38, um, which is a, a later time to start in martial arts. And I started because a friend invited me to go to a class, and I went to be polite. Um, and then much to my surprise, <laughs> excuse me, I had the best workout I've ever had in my life. Uh, I'd gone to gyms and for years and hated it, um, still do. Whenever I have to use gym, I hate it. Um, and uh, the more I trained, the more I took things to heart. And uh, somewhere along the way, my gut levels, my color belt career, uh, I had the idea of, gee, sometime I'd like to have my own school. I'd like to be the guy there leading and providing people with opportunities. And... Uh, so as time went by, um, I had a little two-year drought after my third dan where uh, I didn't have a teacher or a school to go to. And for those who have ever taken a break from martial arts, uh, you know that it gets in your blood. And pretty soon, if you've gone through a, a training drought for whatever reason, you start really itching to get back into it somehow. And so myself and a few other adult black belts who were close friends of mine. Uh, we called another master we knew and said, hi, we're a bunch of old broken down black belts. We need somewhere to train. Can you take us in? And he said, yeah, come on. So we trained with him for two years. And uh, about that time I was getting ready to do my fourth dan, which in WT Taekwondo is where you earn the title of master. I know it's later for ITF practitioners. Um, and then I really started to think seriously about a school and the economy was starting to come back and I kind of looked at places. I didn't know anything about leases, about square footage, about running space, any of that. Um, but I got to a point that uh, I, I was a high school teacher at the time. Uh, here I am telling my students all day long to figure out what it is they love to do that they would do every day for free, and make that a career. And I thought, maybe it's time I took my own advice. Mm. And so 10 years ago, I took the plunge. I, I told all my friends at the time, if it looks like I'm making the biggest mistake in my life, please don't be shy. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And uh, we've gone in a couple directions. I didn't think we'd go, but I'm glad we did. And here we are now.
2: That's awesome. What an awesome story. You're not the first master to come on who got started a little bit later in life. And every person I met who started later seems to really appreciate it, maybe even more than people who start, you know, at a younger age. Uh, yeah. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I, I think there's a, a definite advantage to starting later. I mean, you're never going to kick as high as the 15 year olds, you're never going to last as long as 15 year olds. But I think you've had a chance to have life knock you down a few times Mm -hmm. and you start to appreciate the idea of challenges and overcoming challenges with a little bit different perspective.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. That is a really good segue into our conversation for today, which is about how to engage and retain those older martial artists as well as martial artists who might have disabilities. Um, What are some of your key strategies in recruiting older martial artists um, and then keeping them sort of engaged?
0: Well, the the hard part in recruiting um, an adult student is that a lot of adult students see a martial arts school as an activity for kids, an after-school activity, a summer camp place. And, you know, I don't want to fault the, the schools that did that 20 years ago to keep the doors open. I get it, but I also think it soured our industry a lot. Um, because I think it put that connotation of we're a daycare on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've never done after school pickup North Summer Camp and never will I. Um and so adults A see it as that. So trying to recruit one off the street is very, very difficult. Um and working with adult students, it's hard because adults have a very heightened fear of failure. Uh, they don't want to be the grown-up in the room who is theoretically stronger, wiser, et cetera, and they can't perform the same techniques as a 10-year-old. Well, you have to get them over the fact that they're not going to perform the same as a 10-year-old. They're not 10 years old. Um, the oldest student I had was 72. Mm. And you modify. You modify for what they can do. Um, as far as getting them in, what has actually worked the best for me is bringing in the parents of the students that are already here um, if it's a parent who's brought a child in because maybe they want to study martial arts with their kids and didn't have an opportunity and they're going to provide this for their children in the back of their mind they're thinking about it they're thinking about gee i wish i keep it out there and <laughs> i'll tell you a funny story um one of my poonsei coaches started with me as a white belt she's third dan now Uh, she's been, she's competed at the national level, all this. And here's how she started. I had her two boys in class and she liked to coach from the side. I see nodding your head. You've been through the same thing. You've got the sideline coach. And it was really starting to try my patience to a point. And I said, look, only one of us is getting paid for this. So i tell you what, you can either put on a uniform and get out on the floor, or you can go wait in the car. One of the two. Well, she put on a uniform and pretty soon she also brought in her teenage daughter. And her teenage daughter has helped me with uh, my special needs classes. Um, and like I say, her, her career took off. Now what she found is if I had told her that day that in your 40s, you're gonna go and compete on a national level and you're gonna love every minute of it, she would have thought I was crazy.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet the adults, have even though they have that heightened sense of failure they also have a heightened sense of accomplishment when they've done something that they never thought they could do
3: um
0: when all of a sudden they're in conversations with their peers and he goes what do you do for fun oh i do taekwondo really you do taekwondo and now now they're the cool kids also and um everything means a little bit more to them. I, I kind of mentioned this before. They they understand the idea of challenges and overcoming them better than the kids do um, because the adults don't have somebody coming behind them to clean up their messes for them. They've got to clean up their own. And so it means a little bit more to them. You know, the challenges in keeping them is trying not to let them get injured uh, severely um, because sometimes... The guys don't leave their macho in the car when they come in, and the women don't leave their. We're as good as anybody else in the car. And they come in, they overdo, and next thing you know, you've got pulled muscles all over the place. And people say, oh, I don't want to do that. Um, you have to very, you have to modify, engage, really, really watch those students as they're as they're working out to make sure that you're not overexerting them, not pushing them too far. It, it's still like the kids. You want them to work, but you also want them to have fun. You want to build relationships with other adults there. Once they have a tribe within your school, they're not going to want to leave. And it's because of that my entire staff are people that I've brought up from White Belt. I've never hired anybody from the outside. And um, it's nice because they're such a close group of friends now that they rely on each other tremendously for a lot of things even outside the dojo and can you pick up the kids from school? Can you do this, do that? Um, They wouldn't have had that otherwise. So uh, when they appreciate that more and then they become instructors for you, you've got the very best qualified teachers you could have to teach the kids for some of those classes.
2: That's great. That's so true. You know, it's funny, you look out in the lobby and you see the fire in all those parents' eyes Mm -hmm but they're really nervous to get on the floor and it's always such a challenge to not only get them onto the floor but also create a pathway for their first few weeks of success so they can get launched. I feel like there's probably as many adults as kids who are interested in our program and I'm Mm -hmm. sure probably the same is true for you. But the adults don't have anyone pushing them. So when they get on the mats, they do one good day. And then they, they maybe they sign up because they're really excited after that first day. They can't believe that they, they successfully completed class. But then they go home and it starts gnawing at the back of their mind like, well, I'm going to have to go in again. And they psych mm-hmm. themselves out and they don't go in for their second right. third class. And then eventually you start seeing that kid start disappearing from the floor because the parent's so embarrassed to go back in because they're yeah. join class. It's almost like you, you lose, sometimes you, you lose both, both students because you try to get the parent involved. So nice. it's, it's really difficult situation that, that we have found where we wanna be a school where you can train your whole life. How many masters mm-hmm. have you trained under? And they say, that's what martial arts is so great for. You can do martial arts your whole life, but every school I've ever trained at either is a kid's kick martial arts school or like an MMA fight gym. With very little in between. Sometimes there's like it's like a Tai Chi kind of place where it's just old people, but there's no, there's no balance. And I think that's something that we're really trying to achieve at Rising Phoenix Martial Arts. It sounds like something you have already sort of achieved over there. So I'm really curious what your strategies are for getting those people onto the mats and then creating a really successful pathway for them so that they're not, you know, psyching themselves out.
0: Yeah, it's it's difficult, like, say, you know, you mentioned looking at those signs when they're out there in the waiting area. If they're standing up and looking around the corner through the window, whatever you happen to have, those are the people you go up and you just whisper. And what I'll do is I'll say things like, there's room on the floor for you, too. And we also have an adults-only class, because some will try it if they don't have to be around the kids. Now they only want to play with people their own age. So make sure you've got an adults-only class, regardless of adult level. Um, and the other thing that we do, and we, we just started this, uh, not too long ago. Uh, my sparring coach, who I also train from White Belt Up, like I said, my entire staff is like that. Um, on Monday nights, he runs an exercise and stretch class that we provide as a thank you for the parents for bringing your kids here. And they get to come out on the mat and they do like a half hour of core exercises, maybe planks, jumping jacks, that sort of thing. Then they do an hour of stretching and it gets rave reviews. So now they're a little bit more invested. They kind of feel like student two. And then it's easier to chat with them and say, you know, you could do the other as well. And they're a little bit more receptive to the idea doing that. Um, And I've done uh, posts before showing my adult students and reminding people that, this is not just for kids and you get some phone calls and some people check it out. Um, but I always find if you can overcome that fear of failure, that fear of embarrassment or awkwardness, you've got, but that's a big obstacle to overcome.
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, um, I think the the benefits of martial arts are even more important as we get older. I mean, they're important when you're a kid, obviously. Leadership oh, right. skills, you know, fitness, discipline, all that stuff. But I mean, they're super important when you get older. You know, when we're learning breakfalls when we're young. Yeah, it doesn't hurt as much, but it's not as important as when we get older. If we fall when we're older, that's when we break our hips. So learning right. breakfalls is even more important. Staying in shape is even more important. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, we're
2: really fighting for our survival as an older person, where we're just doing it more for fun as a kid.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, I've also told the adult students I've had that if you want to put yourself on a weight loss program, a diet or whatever, do whatever you're gonna do. But I think a lot of the reason that people's diets fail is they diet for the sake of diet. Mm -hmm. And then when they're done, they've lost weight, but there's really not a reason other than to be smaller. Uh, granted some people lose for health reasons that sort of thing but when we're talking vanity weight loss once they've lost it how many people do you know that packed it right back on again mm-hmm. and you've got you know more people in that than you've had hot dinners however when you've got somebody in class to say you know if you dropped another ten you'd be a little bit faster and you could beat that guy at the next Saturday matches oh okay now we're all about it now there's there's a, a, a very specific goal for that student uh, to go along. Um, you know, it, motivating the adults, it, it's all about modifying. So if they're still working out, um, they feel vested, they feel like they're accomplishing something, and they still have to have fun. Because um, nobody wants to do something that isn't fun. Now, why do everybody hate gyms? They're not fun. Yeah. Um, they're boring. Um, i don't care how many tvs sit out there um, you you mentioned
2: oops sorry you mentioned two things that i wanted to cut in on cuz i totally agree oh, yeah. one is that um, it's always such a shame when i meet people who have great a great body they go to the gym every day and they you know awesome like physically they're super fit but they don't do any sports and it's like what are you doing with that body you know yeah like, yeah um, when you are doing something like the martial arts, when you lose 10 pounds, you move so much faster, you have better balance and coordination. And it's like, there's a, a way to actually use this newfound body, you know? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the second thing is, like you said, I've gone to the gym for many, many years over my life. And while there were a few stretches where it was kind of exciting, you know, seeing my body improve, especially when I was younger and I got with a good group of people who would go with me and I kind of got to know the other gym members. The actual experience of working on the gym is probably the most boring experience of any athletic activity you could do because it's literally just mass repetition of very, very simple exercises. Whereas like something like the martial arts, every time you step on the floor, you're going to be learning something new. You're going to be improving something that's not just, oh yeah, I can do this motion with a little more efficiency. It is, I can do this with more speed and more power and I can put it into application in my sparring and I'm gonna do better. And that's what makes it so awesome. And I think just martial arts in general, they have so much depth. You know, I'm always talking to my students about you can never be a master of it all. The more you work on your striking, the, the worse you get on your grappling, the more you work on your grappling, the worse you get in your striking or your weapons or whatever. And there's just so many pathways to explore um you can't be the master of it all and that's what's so exciting and awesome about it
0: right right i uh i like that term you can't be master of it all and, and how certain skills go away um i got to a point in my own training where um i wasn't really getting thrilled by learning another new poomsay or things like that and i i took up uh Komi-A, which is uh a modern curriculum for hey dongundo Okay. Because I'd always want to learn the sword for as long as I can. And, uh, so I, I've got a black belt in that and certified instructor working on the second, uh, Dan and that sort of thing. That that's my candy. That's my heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm also about to get a black belt in cane self-defense. So just to vary the things that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, a lot of times with the adults, if you show them that there's a path too, um, and and this is one thing, uh, the development of sport has been a boon to motivating adults, uh, because, and I'm sure, you know, in your, your experience, if somebody has been sparring, by the time they start creeping up into their mid twenties, mid late twenties, they're kind of aging out. Mm -hmm. Um, particularly if you have somebody who started late and you've got somebody who's a first stand and they're 28, well, the only person that's going to be their size and weight is going to be somebody with 10, 15 years plus experience on Mm them. And and so they don't want to compete. And they'll break boards for their test. Uh, They'll do that sort of thing, but they they don't want to um, go and spend money just to get beat up. So sport Pumse now, when our world champions are up there in age, mm-hmm. I mean, who was our, our last gal? She was... Uh,
2: so Sao Young Ye was my Pumse coach when I was in Korea, and she's a nine-time world champion, and she is almost mm-hmm. 60. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of examples just like that of yeah. many time working
0: in, that, are, that are quite old. Right When they find out that, oh, now here's this other path that I can do and I can compete on the world stage and I'm not going to get hurt mm-hmm. and I can really work on it, that means a lot. That means a lot to them. So gotta um, almost present those opportunities. And the same thing happens with, uh, with special needs students. Um, if there's a goal for them on it, Special needs students are tremendously goal. They're more goal oriented than anybody else on the planet. I mean, they really are. And and sorry to do my own segue here, but, uh, you know, the the special needs students, uh, they study harder. They don't ask questions. They do exactly what you ask of them. And as long as you're modifying for their ability, whatever it is, and give them um a motivation, a prize at the end of it, they're all about it. They're ready to go.
2: Yeah, something we were just talking about today is um, it's surprising who makes it to black belt and beyond. Sometimes you get this kid who comes mm-hmm. in and he's a fitness uh, god and he doesn't make it to black belt. Then you have another kid who comes in and he's got some disability um, and he makes it all the way because... There's something in the martial arts that really captivates him. Maybe he was looking for community, or he was looking for for meaning, or or whatever it might be, and he found it in the martial arts. Whereas the, um, you know, more athletic, um, you know, practitioner might just kind of glanced over that part, you know.
0: Uh, yeah. I know a thing that we go by that I found to be true, and maybe you have, and I'd be interested in what you have to say. We always go by the uh, saying that only one in every 100 white belts will make a black belt. Mm -hmm. And I found that ratio to be pretty true. And that that spread even gets higher as you get into dam levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can even say to my students, how many people do you not see around here anymore? Mm -hmm. Didn't make it. Yeah. The disappointing is when you have somebody that you're sure is going to make it, and then for whatever reason, they don't want to do a black belt test mm-hmm. and they're going to quit right then. You know, the, the analogy that I use to them is that your color belt career is like training for a marathon. Mm-hmm. This is when you're buying your running shoes, you're gradually increasing how far you can run, and the day you get your black belt is when you step to that starting line for the race. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you walk away and not race after you've done all this training for it? Um, and that seems to keep a lot of them going. And unfortunately, also adds to the shock when someone doesn't do it. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, that's something
2: that um, a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people think that a black belt is an expert, but a black belt means you're a competitor in Korea. I lived in Korea for many years. And they don't have color belt competitions. Color belt right. competition is a Western creation because very few people are able to make it the black belt. But what a black belt really means is that you know enough of the fundamentals to compete in an open competition against other practitioners, such as yourself and, my, and me, who would probably just destroy you if you were just like a white belt. Right. And you're, you're kind of in like a training, you know, if you think about like wrestling or something or any other sport they don't say, okay, well, you've been training and wrestling for six months and you've been training for one year and you've been training for two years and we're going to divide you up so that you guys are at a relative similar level. They don't do that. You know, you're, you're, you're a wrestler and you just wrestle based on your weight. Um, and that's, that's how martial arts is too. But we've, we've, we've in the West, we've kind of, stratified it out through belts and stuff and sometimes they can make the divisions absurdly small so that you have people who've been training for a couple of months again division of one person that become like a national champion because there's no one else to compete against anyway that's a that's a tangent there but um yeah just totally agree with you this idea of like you don't start your race until you get your black belt it's once you get your black belt that you start that run or that competition and earn those degrees based on your abilities
0: yeah yeah, first stand black belt is beginner. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And all, all those gut levels are about learning how to be a beginner. Yeah.
2: And that's just a good mindset to have throughout your entire training. You know, I mean, we're all a beginner in something. There, You know, I, I'm sure your gumdo skills are far superior to mine. I mean, I'm a beginner in gumdo. And uh, we all are, you know, a beginner in something. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So I wanted to hop in here, yeah. backtracking just a little bit to the, the weapons curriculum and the ways that you have seen that, you know, we have a weapons program here at our school as well, um, where we're teaching katana and bow and nunchaku and tampa. Um Hearing about your weapons curriculum, I, I read also that it's swordsmanship and archery as well. Do you do the archery practice um, in the dojong, outside the dojong? Yeah.
0: Yeah, we actually do. Um, we have an indoor target, uh, arrows with safety tips on them. Okay. And all the training for train, uh, Korean traditional archery is between 10 and 15 meters in distance. Okay. And the reason is under the Komo uh, curriculum, it was very much based in battle techniques. And unlike European archers that would fire arrows a long distance towards an enemy, Right. Korean archers fire short distances. A Korean bow is very, very short uh, uh, because they would run through the woods. And if you had a long bow like a Japanese bow or European bow, you're getting hung up on every branch there is. Okay, If you're on horseback, you can't move this huge bow around either side. The shorter bows, generally made of horn, were very compact but very powerful. So it could be fired on horseback, it could be run through the woods with, but it was still for very close uh, targeting on the enemy. And uh, so we shoot in the, in the dojang. We, we put the rubber tips on, we call them bunny busters. And uh, I've got a uh, big piece of carpet that hangs on the wall and that slows Hero down so I don't destroy the drywall and make the landlord mad. Um, and we will practice different shots that way. And learning traditional Korean archery, uh, when I've had students try to come in from using uh, what I call Olympic style, it's relearning because arrow's on the other side of the bow. It's a different kind of grip. And uh, again, there's all battle reasons for that as well. Um, So everybody loves the archery portion of Komi A. I mean, they they really jazz on on that. Yes, sir.
2: That's super cool. We might have to have you come out and teach us a little bit about that bow. Yeah. <laughs> we might break we all to. the windows though. We have a pretty, uh, fragile window set up here. We got. I bought a building that's over 100 years old. It's historic, and it's got all like the tempered glass. You know. It,
0: oh, okay.
3: But we'll <laughs> <we're not.
0: laughs>
2: we had a paddle. Uh, yeah, I one of our windows one time and punched us a little right mm-hmm. out that that. Um, so to kind of get back on topic, you know, what are some of the strategies you employ when working with people with like ADD or dyslexia or, you know, autism?
0: Okay. Um, but I think. Well, a lot of my techniques I brought over from me from my classroom teaching days Um We've worked as far as dedicated classes for special needs, primarily with autism, and that came about. Um, I have an agreement with a local private autism school, and once a week they bring a couple of busloads of kids, uh, six to ten kids at a time, and we do a class. Uh, their instructors stay in with them, and you know we just do little little things, little things uh, based on their capability. Um, you know, some are non-verbal, uh, some have very exacerbated uh, motor deficiencies, so the, trying to do a proper stance is not going to happen, so you have to be happy to get it close, sure. or if I'm just getting the idea, mm. um, but you modify for each individual student, the same as you would for any other student. Um, it, it's really no different in that regard. Um, you maybe do a little bit more positive feedback than you normally would uh because it's not so much that these kids are afraid of failure um but they they want to make sure they're pleasing you they want to make sure they're making you happy mm. and um so in doing so yeah you know, i try to give them as much positive feedback as you can and when i first started that yeah, you know, i I was very honest with uh, the school. I said, look, I've never taught a class of Strictly Autistic Students before. So if you want me to be honest, I really don't know what I'm doing. I said, but I think I can handle it. I think I have an idea. But again, should I be making huge mistakes, say something. And they said, oh, you're you're the, the, the master of the school. We couldn't say anything no, 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 put that to the side, because this is about the students. It's not about me. It's about the students. And fortunately, they've given me some guidance here and there, nothing too serious. Um, there are some things they forgot to tell me. I had one student, uh, 22. This is going to be his final year with us because he, he graduates and ages out of the school at that point, but... Um, He's non-verbal, but he's always in a good mood. And if you're around him, you're automatically in a good mood, no matter what kind of morning you've had. And we were going to do, uh, we were going to use balloons and play keep it in the air only with kicks. Same thing as when you sit around and play the balloon, just lazily, with friends, same thing we were going to do with kicks. That's how we found out he's deathly afraid of balloons. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and... He beelined to the restroom and was not going to come out. And so we did the exercise for the other kids because they were excited about it. And I just let him hide in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, you know, It was not going to ruin his life to not be in that class. And then when it was over, I told him to come out. And he was not going to do it. He was not going to come out. Nope, nope, nope. He saw a balloon out there. So I finally stood in front of him. I said, okay, you put your arm around Master's shoulders and you hang on to him. I'm not going to let anything hurt you, and we're going to go look, and we're going to make sure there's no balloons up there, and we're going to go together. And he was on me like a second skin. And we went out. I told all the other students, hold your hands up, show them that there's no balloons, and no balloons, okay. And he, he calmed down at that point. But if I'd not take him out to show him, he'd still be in my bathroom to this moment. Um, and but it's things like that that they forget to tell me, and I'd find out hard way um i've been fortunate we have not had any major meltdowns from any kids uh, we have not had any huge discipline problems um, we've had lots of excitement uh, in fact one of those students um, became a regular member at yeah. the school actually two of them have and there's another two who do real well um but for whatever reason the parents can't put them into regular membership i think one lives Quite a ways away and it would just be impractical to, to get here um but when we have a tournament with para competition they're there and uh, they go and they compete and a plastic surgeon can't get that smile off their face uh, or me for that matter because i'm just so proud of them and living through them uh, you know one <laughs> i've had to tell one of them i said you still have to train hard I always win gold medals. Yeah, someday you're not going to
3: mm-hmm. if you
0: don't keep training hard. I said it's not just how to mac because you filled out the entry form that they put a gold medal to the side for you. You still have to earn that. And then she looks at me and goes, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, she still trains hard yeah. and uh, and they absolutely love it. And, yeah, I I told somebody, if I'd known that working with autistic kids was so much fun, I would have done it years ago. Um, Years ago, I would have done it. Um, You know, I've got some that they don't do a lot. They just want to come in and hug. But you say, no, we got to work. And uh, you you get by. Uh, You have
2: a full class of autistic kids just, just for children with autism? Pardon me? You have a full class just for... Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, they would come in uh, once a week, let's say, for about 45 minutes, and I'd have six to 10 students in. Uh, the first class, as long as the younger guys, the younger guys are a little bit more challenging. Uh, they're lots of runners, <laughs> and uh, then my teenagers come in the second class, and uh teenagers i can do a little bit more uh, tightened up less and a little bit more traditional kind of stuff because they're they're older you know that's the whole reason they're just older Um, and you know i see changes in them from year to year as they grow uh i see some abilities grow i see some abilities backslide a little bit um you know i have to deal with was their medication changed? And certainly I'm not in the loop for that information when it happens. Yeah. Um, You know, I I find out the hard way on everybody. Uh, Sometimes I'll ask, uh, you know, medication change. But the thing is, it, it also opened my eyes to how many, quote, regular students I had who are probably, certainly on spectrum, or certainly have the other challenges like you mentioned. I I had a student who had whatever there was to have, he had it. He had ADD, he had uh, hyperactivity, he had dyslexia, he had Tourette's, uh, you know, everything. And, you know, I just learned that chunk out a technique, just chunk it out. If you want him to do a low block followed by punch, we're going to just start with low block. Then we're going to talk about twisting the wrist. Okay. Then we're going to talk about pulling that back to a chambered position as the punch comes out, breaking it into little fine steps. And in doing that, we could give him, give him the skills he needed, and he could do well. Um, and we learned that you know if it was time to introduce a new Pumse to an entire class, yeah, he can. I always gave him this option. I said, "You can follow along the first time all the way through if you want, or you can watch." Mm-hmm. Most time, he would watch because you could probably get a group of people to fight through, follow through 19 or 20 moves. You know, they're going to make mistakes. This thing can be pretty, but they'll follow along. And that was just way too much input for him at one time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I said, "But did you see it and get an idea of what it looks like?" I think so. Okay. We're just going to work on the first move. Mm. And we're going to do the first move six times. Mm. Then we're going to do the first move and the second move six times. And you just add in one more as you go. And it might take him a little bit longer to learn that say, but he'll learn it. And as long as you can keep them practicing. You know, teaching them is only 50% of the battle. Keeping them practicing is the other half. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can keep them practicing it then like you know you get to a point where you do these things out of muscle memory they will too if they practice um, if they don't then here you are on test day and they don't know what's going on so you practiced practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's one thing I am hard about it's you have to practice because nothing can make the veins pop out of my forehead more than teaching a high belt how to do their beginner stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, we're one of those schools where you're responsible for everything all the way through. I told students at my last belt test, my test started at white belt, and yours is too. And that's because we have one chain school in town that once they learn a belt, it's done, then they learn the next belt. And I'm sure you have schools like that in your area. They're all over the place. Um, I said, no, you... You're not going to be wearing my uniform and have somebody say, show me what people are in a white belt and you have no clue. That's not going to happen. <laughs> not with my label on there.
2: Awesome. That's great. Um, I mean, that's a whole different discussion about, you know,
3: yeah,
2: integrity and ethics in the martial arts. I have a lot to say on that, too. But to kind of get back on topic... Um, now, working with children with disabilities and having a weapons program, this is interesting. So uh, do you make any changes to your weapons program for people? Well,
0: honestly, we haven't moved them into weapons too much. I've only had one that's kind of uh, dealt with weapons a little bit with the uh, Dombong short stick. Um, it's a matter of motor control in a lot of situations. Um, and... You know, to do, we had a couple try uh, sword class one night, and they just didn't quite have the motor control to right and sort of safely learn to do a cut. Yeah. Um, and not so much injury in them, but injury the person next to them. So when I do, we do all um, a short stick. Yeah. Uh, because. separate them far enough, that way if they swing wild, they're not going to hit anybody.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, the the number of weapons that we teach is very limited anyway. It's just Dombong, sword, archery, and tank. Those are the Mm -hmm. only ones we teach. Um, And uh, the challenge has always been the motor control and with, with the autistic kids, they don't want to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. So when you're bringing in the idea of a weapon, a lot of them will get stuck on, why would I ever want to learn that? Mm-hmm. So I don't ever want to hurt anybody. Punching and kicking, they're envisioning targets, boards, doing a pumse. For those that sparred, they understand they're going for hogus. Um, but when you talk about weapons, that's a whole different kind of thing. That's not a sanctioned fight situation. And a lot of them, I'm going to say, like for lack of a term, find it distasteful. It's just not within their their realm of of being to do that. Um, so I haven't done a lot of experimentation with weapons and autistic students. Now, if I had someone of different ability, um, you know, someone say wheelchair bound that wanted to learn short cane different story. Different story. You modify techniques to work with it. If they wanted to work with Don Bong or something, um, that we can do. Uh,
2: what about with uh, children? Do you assume you teach weapons to children, and when do you start? Is there a rank at which you start?
0: I, I start, I don't have a, like, a belt level I start. It's individual. Uh, I look at their temperament and their demeanor. Um, you know, I've had a green belt that not for love or money, but I'd put a wooden stick in his hand. Um, yet I've had a yellow belt who could deal with it and understand. Um, so that's how I divide up that way. And I, again, I just kind of keep it short and sweet um, because the, a lot of the kids, they don't think in terms of a street attack. They understand bullies, but they also know they can't have weapons at school. Um, so when I deal with weapons, it'll be and I'll say, look, this is just a stick. And this could be anything you find in the room if you really needed to defend yourself. Um, but they can't grasp a bully doing that. And sometimes it's hard too. And this is where things are different for, so different and foreign for someone my age, right, because it's a different experience when I grew up. Um, You know, as a classroom teacher, we had to do active shooter drills. But it's actually on the minds of these six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And you show them a wooden stick, and the biggest threat they can think of is someone coming in to shoot up their school. They already know their wooden stick is useless, and there's not a lot of motivation for them to learn that. Um, And that's something that's sometimes hard for me to conceptualize because you know, when I was in high school, kids still had their guns in their gun rack in their pickup truck, and nobody would even think about bringing you in the building shooting anybody. Um, so it's a whole different mindset for me to try to wrap around for the modern world. Um, but little kids, all based on temperament and desire. Um, because if you have a little one who, who you know wouldn't hurt anybody, but they're getting bored, and they're just swinging wood stick around, Something probably them is going to get a big knot on it. And then I've got to talk to a parent. You
2: know, uh,
0: yeah, I, I agree
2: with all those sentiments. Also, I feel like kids love swords. <laughs> oh, yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter that they're never going to like bring their sword to school and right. defend themselves. I mean, everyone wants to be a knight, even though there really are no knights. Um, right. Because it's badass and awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I probably with my younger ones, I will starting to introduce sword, but I want to find some nice foam swords like Dollar Tree, that sort of thing for me to use, uh, but not pirate-looking swords because I need something, you know, to grip. And uh, if push comes to shove, I'm just going to use cool noodles, I guess. Do you, uh, uh, you swords.
2: Uh, stock
0: Sentry? Yeah, Sentry's got some. Um,
2: Action Flex? They also have yeah. like, these, these foam ones, which are more fragile and not really meant for full contact or anything. But uh, right. yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on those because we, we've been also, you know, sourcing uh, products is such a, cha- a unique challenge that you don't realize until you get into the business and you're like, wow. I mean, I'm sure you've had some issues over these last couple of years where, I mean, just uniform. Yeah. Uh, one student bought a uniform more than eight months ago and it took us about eight months for it to get into stock. And then as soon as it got into stock, it was out of stock again. And now we're waiting yeah. a couple more months and we're still not sure when the next uniform is going to come in. Um, it's just so challenging. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, you know, I, I've been there in the uniform situation with everybody else where, you know, you're you're buying brands you don't normally buy only because they have them in stock. Yeah, And, um, uh, you know, I, I was buying a lot of Pro Force because they're cut a little bit extra big um, and you can generally fit kids in it for a longer period of time. So I hate telling parents every six months they need another uniform to kick her out of it. Um, and uh, so I, I bought things that, I maybe wasn't entirely through with little cut, but they had them. Fortunately, a lot of the the suppliers that I use uniform wise are getting back into it. But, you know, you mentioned swords and the problem with a lot of uh, the foam and polypropylene practice swords that I've seen is they deform very easily. And for the price... That's what makes me has on a lot of things. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of like the, and I'm sure you've seen it, the Bob XL that has the legs now. Mm-hmm. Okay, $400 for this thing, yeah. 10 minute a boy to put it together. And it only takes one good side kick to those legs. And that thing's broken, it's useless. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my cane instructor has one for cane instruction. But even that, he still gingerly only hits those legs because he knows you're gonna snap and break. Um, and a lot of these foam swords are the same thing. Um, you know, I, I, I know one other uh, sword student who had one of the polypropylene swords. And uh, I said, do you keep it in the trunk of your car? He said, yeah, sometimes. I said, do you have to bend it back into shape a lot? So sometimes. they're getting their melt. Um, yeah. and, and foam chips, you know, um, if you're going to have them strike a bob or or strike some other kind of target, that foam is going to chip. Yeah. Uh, Expensive.
2: Um, You do a lot of uh, like uh, sparring with weapons?
0: um, With swords you do. Now, we do use padded swords, round padded swords. Um, And there is a full armor to it. And (laughs) interesting side story. When, When I first started in this, I knew that the sparring was with padded swords. And I thought, well, padded swords, well, why would you want armor? But I bought the armor because, you know, teaching tool, visual kind of thing. And then we had a seminar with our grandmaster. Yeah. And he hit me in the armor with the padded sword. And I felt it go through to my spine. I thought, every penny I paid for that armor was so worth it right now. <laughs> I said, I get it now. Okay, I, I have been instructed. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, we'll we'll do that, and and uh, we'll do some light stuff, just going for wrist and head with uh, just forearm guards and and uh, a helmet, preferably one with a face shield, um, because you don't want the tip, of, you know, these fabric coated swords come down and graze somebody's eye and scratch it. Put a face shield on, um, and uh, honestly, people enjoy the sparring. With, swords more than Olympic Taekwondo sparring. Um, I've not seen a sword sparring match yet where both combatants at some point do not start to giggle. Um, There's a joke about, uh, all you're doing is playing with swords. No, this is very serious, concentrated study and the use of the sword. Well, how'd you get into it? Eh, Playing with swords. (laughs) That's awesome.
2: Yeah, we we do like um, defense sets back and forth, and we'll do some like you know fifty percent speed kind of no mm-hmm. contact sparring. Mm-hmm. Um, we use wooden bokens, which are pretty resilient. I mean, yeah. crack eventually, but right. you can glue them back together and kind of continue. Yeah. I've I've played around with the idea of doing shinai, but the kendo armor is very expensive. Um,
0: and we were. Got a set for sale if you ever want.
2: <laughs> right now, we're looking at doing the action flex at a certain level of proficiency. Mm-hmm. The the action flex like helmet and gloves, but right. it's just one more thing that we have to sell to our students, and it's always so hard getting
3: yeah
0: a, yeah
2: full set yeah. of everything that it's like
3: it's been a little
0: bit of a challenge. Yeah, you, you don't want to be holding your hand out once a month. To parents for for money, um, yeah. You know, some schools don't have a problem with it. Um, I always want my school to be affordable, um, and but I'm also very honest with people. If they're going to seriously study swords, equipment is expensive in mm-hmm. sword. You know, the armor is four hundred dollars if you're going to get proper armor, mm-hmm. um, and it's different than the uh, kumdo armor. The kumite armor is a little different. It's more like action flex. Um, and, uh, you know, a good aluminum practice sword is about $140. Uh, you know, uh, a good bow is going to run you two and a quarter for a Korean bow. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is expensive. Now, I find inexpensive sources as best I can. God bless Amazon. Um, you know, if I, if I order arrows from the Korean armory, I'm gonna spend $50, 50 to $60 for uh, six arrows, plus the shipping from Korea. So now I'm in a hundred bucks, I can get a dozen arrows off Amazon, carbon fiber, same length for 30 bucks. And uh, you know, the little ones love bow. Uh, You get a couple cheap 10 pound bows, you can get them at any sporting goods store in town you're going to spend 15 to 20 bucks probably close to 15 for these and little fiberglass arrows and they love it and if you get enough of them there's a fantastic game that kids love to play it's a war game they have their foam sword in their belt they've got their bow that's kind of like dodgeball I love, it. I love where this is going okay yeah, yeah. You've got kids on both sides of the room yeah. and you've got so many archers with arrows and I've got the big, huge padded tips on them, big, huge ones. Yeah. Things that, you know, it's only a 10-pound bow and this thing's on it. So just the way that thing drags the arrow down anyway. So if it hits anybody, it's not going to hurt them. They're wearing their helmets. And it turns into, if they get shot with the arrow, they're down for, or they're out. Um, if they're out of arrows completely, they have to take their sword and try and go and defeat an archer before they can get a shot in. And it's just total war in the middle of the floor. Somebody shoots an arrow, somebody else picks up and shoots it back at them. And they're having a ball. And I first saw this at a seminar with a grandmaster. And he said, do you think your kids like to play this? I said, my adults are going to love to play this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they're going to be all over it. And uh, so there, there's some very exciting things you can do with, with that. Um, we don't do the, the shield stuff, um, simply because it's not part of the curriculum. But, uh, and, and we don't allow anybody to do any real cutting till age 16. Um, but they, they have to learn how to handle everything, even if it's a padded sword, like it's a live honed blade. Because I tell them, this sword is going to look for a way to kill you if you let it. Mm-hmm. And there, there's two things that you give ultimate respect to. And that's a chainsaw and a sword. <laughs> and I think both of them require training for anybody to allowed to own. Uh, but uh, when you when you train them right, they just they have a good time. And like I say, when they get in, they just have a ball with playing the war game.
3: Yes, yeah. sir.
2: So, that's so awesome so was a blast. well we have taken quite a bit of your time really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about these things jesse you got any final questions for master samuel sorry sure. so, we,
1: so I, I am always for most of the conversations i'll sit back a little bit and kind of ruminate and let them boil up uh, i guess two big questions first question huh? is in regard to advice for a new instructor um you know as you said you have brought up all of your instructors through your program, right? And over that time, you know, we, we are doing something very similar, if not the same thing here. Uh, all of our instructors right now have moved up through the program. Mm-hmm. Over that time, you get to know them, you get to work with them, you get to see them every day or most days. What advice would you give to a new instructor who is just stepping on the floor and maybe they have that older student on the floor who it's their first day, maybe they're a little timid, or maybe they have an opportunity to work with Students with disabilities, whether it's autism or you know, even if it's uh, ADD, ADHD, just some additional challenge or or something that that student is working with and working through. What advice do you give to that instructor on, on their first day or on their day where it's on their shoulders
0: to, to work with that student? And to okay, um, I like to remind people to. Keep their eyes and ears open for anything and everything. Mm-hmm. But also to remember, ultimately, as much as the lower ranking student, regardless of age, be showing respect to a higher ranking student or instructor, ultimately, in the end, we are there to serve them. And so make sure you are giving good service. Make sure you're meeting needs and ask. Ask a question. Explain things as many times you need. Demonstrate as many times you need to demonstrate. I don't care if it's one time or a thousand times. It's all about the student. The The most important person in any dojo is the student, because nothing happens about the student. Yes, sir. You know, the master can still go practice. The master can still go compete. The master can do whatever they want. The student needs everything else. So they're the most important, they're the ones to keep the dojongs alive and going. So I just remind them, give good service, listen, and watch. Uh, Because sometimes the older student um, won't tell you exactly what they need, and many times the autistic student can't because they're probably nonverbal. Yes, sir. Or they don't know what to ask. They don't know how to phrase their question. So watch and listen, and just see where... Where things are going um it's all about great being advice. in the room, being there Yes, nice.
1: yes sir i think that's it i, I was going to ask another but i think that's a great great point to end on so
2: well master samuel it was a true pleasure having you on i think you had some really important things to say about you know working with older people and people with disabilities and uh, we'd love to have you back on in the future if you ever want to talk about something else. Um, I'm sure our students got a lot out of this, as well as other instructors around the country who are watching mm-hmm. our podcast. Um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yes,
0: sir. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. I, I've enjoyed this immensely, and I look forward to talking to you again.
2: Yeah, yes, okay. sir. Yes, sir. Well, have a great day. You too. If you enjoyed that podcast, please consider liking and subscribing to our YouTube channel, as well as hitting the notification bell. We offer in-person, group, and private lessons at our facility in Kyle, Texas, as well as virtual lessons anywhere in the world. If you'd like to learn more about our programs,
3: you can find us online at risingphoenixtkd.com.